Hi, welcome to the Rigged Podcast. I am Jamie Folk. And I'm Ilyas Rona. And today we are going to be discussing the Melendez Diaz case with Luke Ryan, as as well as playing some clips from that uh, case. And what else did we talk about today? Uh, we're going to cover uh, why uh, why we have criminal trials done the way we have them done in this country and what the basic protections are and why we care about them and what happens when we stop caring about them. That's right. All of that and more in today's Rigged Podcast. Enjoy. We'll hear argument next in case 07591, Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts. Mr. Fisher. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In Crawford against Washington, this court made clear that the right to confrontation at its core is a protection against a system of trial by affidavit. It is an ancient procedural guarantee that requires the prosecution to prove its case through live witnesses who testify before the jury and who are subject to cross-examination. Introducing forensic laboratory reports, such as, the, such as the certificates at issue in this case, is the modern equivalent of trial by affidavit. The documents are sworn formal statements. They are crafted purposefully for the express purpose of proving a fact that is an element of a criminal offense. And as the state forthrightly admits in its brief, they are introduced in lieu of having the analyst called as a witness to the stand. They are therefore quintessentially testimonial evidence. Ilias, why don't you uh, go first and introduce yourself? All right. uh, thank you, Jamie. Um, it's, I'm happy to be part of this. Uh, I think this is important. My name is Ilias Rona. I'm an attorney. I do civil litigation, not criminal, uh, but I work on cases that um, uh, flow out of uh, a misconduct, uh, whether it's by the government or large corporations. Uh, and and um, I have uh, worked on cases involving pharmaceutical companies and their efforts to defraud uh, taxpayers and to uh, rip off uh, patients. Uh, I've also uh, worked on cases involving uh, abuse of power, whether it be the police or other uh, arms of the government. Uh, I uh, happen to work on a, a case of an innocent person who spent nearly two years in prison uh, for a crime he didn't commit, the crime being possession of cocaine. Uh, and that is the case that uh, awakened me to um, uh, some of the issues that uh, we're going to be talking about and uh, also made me concerned that the normal checks and balances that you expect in the system don't seem to be functioning. Right. And um, also with us is, as a guest today, is Luke Ryan. Uh, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know who Luke is. Uh, he's the star of the Netflix uh, documentary, How to Fix a Drug Lab Scandal. Um, Luke, you want to just, for, for those who haven't seen that yet, you want to just kind of give a brief intro to yourself? Sure. So uh, thank you both uh, very much for having me today. Uh, I think this is a really important project you've embarked upon, and I know you've done an ambitious uh, agenda here for really um, uh, tracking and, and distilling uh, many years of work that you've both done coming at a, a very big problem from, from different angles. So uh, I'm a, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney. I practice out of Northampton, Massachusetts. 
uh, and starting in uh, January of 2013, uh, ended up spending much of my professional life uh, dealing with the fallout of what became known as the Amherst Drug Lab scandal. So again, I'm really, really delighted to, to be here and, and look forward, uh, not only as a guest, but as a uh, listener to uh, uh, the work the two of you uh, are about to, um, to accomplish here. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I've known Luke for a few years, um, and I've known Ilias for a few years as well. I, uh, my history, my name is uh, Jamie Folk again, and my history is more of, I guess, a former co- co-worker. Like I told him what I was doing. I work in the pharmaceutical slash biotech uh, industry in quality assurance. That's I've worked there for about 17 years. And when I told a former co-worker uh, what I was doing, he just kind of stopped and looked at me. He's like, you're a muckraker. <laughs> and that's essentially what I've, I, I mean, you could say investigative journalist or whatever, independent investigative journalist. I've been, I've received over 70,000 emails from the state and, um, you know, interviews uh, and public records documents from the state. I've worked with several reporters and elected officials to try to get the true story of the drug lab um, out to the public. And then I've also volunteered at the Department of Corrections from 2010 to 2015. Uh, And I met a lot of people who were saying they were innocent at the time. But, you know, when you're in jail and you're doing a volunteer program, it's it's hard to kind of take that thing seriously. You take it with a grain of salt. Um, and then I came out and and this came out, you know, during my time there. And it, I just kind of saw everything in a new light. And I've, uh, I wanted to do this because of everything that I've been seeing from all these public records that I've been getting. And then I talked to lawyers like Luke and like Ilias, the state has not come out and told the whole truth. And the media has also missed several motives for why the Hinton lab scandal happened, why the Amherst lab scandal happened, and why another lab scandal um, that was part of those two happened at another lab that we'll talk about in another episode. But there's a third lab that's implicated with uh, wrongdoing and uh, their chemists giving false testimony sworn under oath. So um, we're I'm, now I'm going to do the Hinton lab overview. It's just going to be like a 40,000 foot look at what happened at the uh, William H. Hinton lab from 2002 to 2012. Now, during that time, Annie Dukin uh, was a chemist there. She worked um, in testing drug evidence. And during her time at the lab, she had a reputation for testing more evidence than anyone else at the lab. And that was because it turned out later that she wasn't actually testing a lot of the evidence. Uh, She would just dry lab and say, take a, do a spot look at, at a at cocaine evidence and say, hey, that looks like cocaine, like the other cocaine that was submitted with it. So I'm just going to mark that down as cocaine and not run the test that I'm supposed to run. She would do that with cocaine and heroin, she admitted to. Um, and she also admitted to having a master, or she also falsely asserted that she had a master's degree on the stand. And she also admitted to turning negative results to positive. And that the reason she did that was never, hasn't been determined by the state. And so she served, when she was caught, she served two and a half years out of a three to five year sentence. And she was determined to be the lone bad actor in the drug lab crisis by the Massachusetts Office of the Inspector General. So Sonia Farak, uh, Luke, do you want to briefly talk about Sonia? Uh, sure. So, yeah. um, 
Sonia Frock uh, was also a chemist like Annie Dukin. She also started at the Hinton Laboratory in the summer of 2003. In 2004, she relocated to Western Massachusetts and began uh, an eight-year, four-month uh, tenure at the Amherst Drug Laboratory. Um, Ms. Frock, in January of 2013, was arrested and charged with uh, illegally tampering with and illegally possessing controlled substances. Uh, she was prosecuted throughout 2013 uh, and by the Office of the Attorney General. In January of 2014, she pled guilty to the charges against her. And over the course of the next several years, it came to light that her misconduct um, uh, was not uh, limited to the day that she was arrested as it was originally represented, but in fact spanned her entire uh, tenure as a forensic analyst. And this resulted in uh, the dismissal of approximately 16,000 convictions. Right. And that last part there is um, the, the state asserting things that are not true, they know are not true, is a, is an ongoing theme. Would you say that's an ongoing theme throughout the whole drug lab crisis? Uh, I think that's a, a fair statement. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, that's what Luke found. We'll get into uh, the, the nuts and bolts of exactly what Luke found, but uh, persistence in his case and, um, you know, just persistence to do the right thing really led him to some very surprising results uh, and information from the Amherst lab investigation by the attorney general's office that we'll also get into. So uh, why this case is important. So I think we just touched on why it's important uh, from, from kind of a standpoint of telling the truth and being upfront with, you know, what, law enforcement shares with defense attorneys in terms of, you know, discovery of, of a criminal trial. Would you guys agree with that? Is that a, again, is that a big uh, hallmark of this case? Well, the, I think the, the, the way to uh, frame the question that, re that resonates for me is what type of society do we want to live in? Mm -hmm. And what separates us from other places in the world? that we might not want to live in. And we have two uh, bedrock principles uh, that we uh, trust are there for us. One is that we're innocent until proven guilty. And Luke can talk more about that, why that's vital. Uh, and the second one is uh, the United States prides itself on being the hub of science. This is a country that touts its uh, uh, achievements in every field. And science has certain uh, bedrock principles that cannot be violated. And what's concerning about this case is that both principles seem to have evaporated uh, in plain sight. And the government is now responsible for looking at itself and explaining what happened. And what they've given us is a half answer. And the media, who we also depend on to be the, uh, 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 the, uh, the referee, uh, calling fouls uh, on our behalf, uh, appears to have gone along with it. Uh, they've certainly done uh, some work uh, uh, and, and I think uh, helped to bring information to light, but they've sort of stopped midway and have not taken this thing to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to its full conclusion. So I think 
my uh, viewpoint here is how could any of this have happened? How could any of this have happened given how many professionals are involved in making sure it doesn't happen? Right. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that uh, point is well taken about the presumption of innocence. Uh, it's one of those things that everybody uh, at a certain point uh, appreciates and comes to understand is, is a hallmark of our system. But um, what it really means and what it's supposed to mean are, are two very different things. Um, oftentimes, uh, anybody gets uh, arrested and they'll cover it in the paper and it'll say, uh, you know, John Doe was uh, arrested in possession of, uh, you know, six pounds of, of marijuana and, you know, $13,000 in cash. Uh, and then the last line after a lengthy description of what occurred will say allegedly or so the state says. And, and I think that so often um, that presumption of innocence is, is honored in the breach if it's honored at all. And, and it really is something that um, our, our founders uh, were, were really invested in being just a bedrock part of our justice system, that if the state is going to do something like deprive an, a human being of his or her liberty, uh, that they're going to have to swim upstream. The current is going to be against them and that um, in, in any case where there's any sort of doubt, that doubt has to go into the, the benefit of, of the accused person. And so um, we have been living uh, for the last 50 years with this drug war that has done so much to undermine that. And these uh, scandals that kind of came together, I think really can't be separated out from uh, a, uh, in a, a war that's been waged uh, for trillions of dollars and costs uh, millions of, of, of lives uh, for a, uh, that's slowly and consistently eroded away at, at principles that really are supposed to dictate how we treat each other and how we, our relationship with the government. Yeah, and I agree. I agree. Um, um, and to, and your, to your point, point about the founding fathers and what they felt about a fair trial, John, John Adams, would, didn't he defend the soldiers in Boston Massacre at their trial? Was he their defense lawyer? lawyer? Indeed, he was. He And uh, he, uh, in the course of his defense, uh, raised what's uh, been known as Blackstone's ratio, this idea that it's better to let uh, 10 guilty people go free than have one innocent person uh, wrongfully convicted. And that's, that's another just part of our, our, our basic uh, understanding of how the government should function in its relationship to um, the citizens, uh, that it, it really is a, a terrible, awful thing when somebody who, who does not deserve to have their reputation and the, destroyed and their liberty taken um, so there has to be these procedural safeguards in place uh, and, 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 and a cost-benefit analysis that's really weighted towards making sure that uh, happens rarely, uh, in, if at all. Right. And like to your point, majority of trials or majority of criminal charges are, are dealt with outside the courtroom now. Is that correct? I think about uh, on the federal side, I think you're around 95, 90, 
six uh, percent of cases are resolved by way of plea in the state side. It's over ninety percent. There was a court case a few years ago that said we no longer have a system of trials; it's a system of pleas. So, uh, although people technically have this presumption of innocence, once you enter the system, it, it's so weighted against criminal defendants. Um, a lot of people, even innocent people, uh, end up deciding they do their own cost-benefit analysis and decide to. Uh, to plead guilty just to avoid the the worst of what the system can do to them. Right. And then uh, another big part of this case is the presumption that the state is telling you the truth. Um, And that, I think, is weighed extremely heavily in society and also with the media. I believe that the media, you know, I have a gross analogy of the mother bird, you know, just kind of regurgitating into the mouth of everyone and then everyone just kind of lopping it up without question. But that's what I found in this case, because what attracted me to this case first was that I, this was similar to the stuff I was doing at work in that I was, I investigate any, the Annie Dukins of the world in the private sector companies pay me to come in and, and find this kind of stuff. But outside of the, and, I, and so I, I kind of had a sense of that something wasn't right here. But then I also read the police report. And in the police report, uh, it, that directly contradicts a lot of what the state has said in terms of what Annie Dukin was doing in the lab and what her motives for doing what she did in the lab were. And, you know, just a simple act of, hey, I'm going to check another source outside of what WBZ is telling me. Or, you know, whoever, whatever news station is telling you, if you just do that simple thing, you find a lot of really weird stuff. And um, that's what this case is to me. It's just scratching the surface and it reveals how many lies the state are telling, like pretty boldly. And we'll get into a lot of that stuff uh, during the course of this. But we wanted to start uh, with the case that kind of. Kicked, I think we all, we had a uh, Zoom call before this and we all kind of agreed that Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts, uh, that Supreme Court case and the result kind of uh, put into hyperdrive what was really going on there. Do you guys agree with that at, the, at going on there at the Amherst and Hinton Labs? Right. Melendez-Diaz, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court case comes at a time when I think there were storm clouds on the horizon uh, at least from the government's perspective. Uh, and in hindsight now, we know what has transpired since Melendez-Diaz, but this is things that have become public. But if you read between the lines, these were things that were, I think, if not known, they were beginning to be uh, perceived within different branches of the government. And so the arguments in the case are interesting because uh, this is a poker player sort of showing their hand to you a little bit. Uh, and the rest of us have no idea. We're just sort of following along. So I think it comes at an interesting time in uh, at, 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 at history. And, uh, but I think to understand Melendez-Diaz, and maybe Luke, this is something you can explain, it's vital to understand what the confrontation clause is. This is, derives uh, from the Constitution most people have no idea what it is uh, or that it exists, except that we, we inter- have internalized that it exists, because in our mind, everybody is familiar with the Perry Mason cross-examination, and that cases are won or lost based on that cross-examination. 
So Luke, if maybe you could explain what the confrontation clause is, why we have it, uh, and then uh, that will put the Melendez-Diaz in the proper context. Sure. So uh, the confrontation clause is found in the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution, and it basically provides that in a criminal case, a defendant uh, through his or her attorney, or if they're representing themselves, they themselves have this right to confront uh, the witnesses against them. It's based on uh, a very kind of ancient understanding that it's, it's, diffi- it's more difficult for somebody to, to tell a lie about another person uh, if they don't have to look that person in the eye or be questioned by that person. And so it's, um, it's something that, um, you know, constitutions are, are not laws. They are sort of a society saying, this is how we are constituting ourselves. This is, it's, it's, a, it's a document that is, a, is about defining values. And so it is something that was in the Bill of Rights and it, it is a, an essential protection. Um, the Supreme Court has called cross-examination the greatest engine for the discovery of truth ever invented. So that became the issue in this uh, sort of -of run-of-the-mill drug case of uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Melendez-Diaz. It started at a Kmart in Dorchester uh, in November of 2001 and uh, ended up winding its way through the legal system and had uh, profound consequences, um, not only for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in in drug cases, but for really many, many cases uh, across the country uh, that involve um, uh, any sort of uh, scientific evidence. Right. And it's it's funny because the case had such humble beginnings like you were talking about where a guy gets basically caught by Kmart security in Dorchester, like going out and, and going to some suspicious blue sedan, right? With his friends. Is Is that how it was? Luke. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was a, 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 a somebody in uh, human resources named Thomas Wright, and he was working at Kmart. And over a, a few month period, um, there was a, a loss prevention manager who was monitoring him and noticed that uh, on three or four occasions, uh, Mr. Wright uh, made a phone call. And then a few minutes later, walked outside and he got in a car and drove off. And um, this was not a loss prevention problem, but he was playing big brother with the technology available to him. So he called the police and the police show up and uh, what uh, the loss prevention manager predicted unfolded. And suddenly he looks like a clairvoyant and they begin to sense there's a felony afoot. So they track the car down and they see some ambiguous movements in it. And they decide that there must have been a uh, drug transaction that went down. So as Mr. Wright heads back to work, they decide they're going to throw him up against the wall for a stop and frisk. And they um, statistically, you know, most of these things don't pan out. Over 90% of these uh, street encounters uh, end up with just this sort of momentary loss of dignity. But in this one particular case, it turned out Mr. Wright had these a bag on him with these rocks that a detective thought looked like cocaine. So they arrested him, put in a call to go uh, arrest the occupants of that blue sedan. And one of the people in that sedan 
was a young man named Luis Melendez Diaz, who was charged with uh, uh, possession of uh, cocaine with the intent to distribute, as well as the distribution of cocaine. Right. And, and it's important to, at this point, pause and observe uh, uh, something about, that's unique about, well, I don't want to say unique, but special about drug cases. Um, in that, in the summary that, uh, Luke, you've given, at this point, I have not heard anything to tell me that a crime was committed. Right. And the, and the police are no different. They don't know that a crime has been committed. You have to, to have a crime committed, you have to know that what was allegedly in Mr. Melendez Diaz's possession was cocaine in this case. You'd have to know it. And you have no basis. And we'll get into later whether the police actually know or don't know and whether they're accurately telling the public that they know or don't know. But for now, based on this fact pattern, the police don't know. And therefore, the government doesn't know. And therefore, we don't actually know that a crime has been committed. And so we're going to depend on the testimony or not, depending on which way Melendez Diaz turns out, Mm -hmm. of a chemist to tell us whether a crime was committed. So it's a very unusual, it's not like murder, it's not like bank robbery. You know, if you ever had your house broken into or your bike stolen, you know a crime is committed instantaneously. Right. Um, here, you don't actually know. And, and that's the rub of this case, because what the state of Massachusetts was saying in the trials was that um, the C of A that's generated by the chemist testing the drugs that were confiscated at the stop constituted... Um, did they call it a business document? Is that correct? Or, or they, they called it just a certificate that didn't require any testimony. It, it's just a static um, document that you just say, here, the, the, the testing came back as cocaine. Here are the documents generated by our lab that prove that it was cocaine. And you don't need to test, and our chemists don't need to testify to their testing. Right. right. The C of A, uh, it refers to what? what is- certificate of analysis. Okay. And uh, I think the, the listeners don't need to know the exact concepts at play here. The fundamental concept is the confrontation clause. Within that, there are some exceptions. And so you'll hear whether something is hearsay uh, or hearsay within an exception, whether something is a business record, uh, and whether something is testimonial. Those are all uh, uh, tools that we try to use to get to the answer of whether you have a confrontation right. And Luke can explain these better. Uh, but I think what we're really talking about here is, does a live human being have to come into court to testify? Or can you simply slide a piece of paper across the table so that the, that the jury can ultimately see it? And is that sufficient? Is it, can you try this case with a piece of paper? Or does a, a, an actual chemist have to appear? That's the, 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 the fundamental question. And that, that's, that's right. And, and for many years, there was a Supreme Court case from 1980 called Ohio v. Roberts. And the test was, well, is this um, reliable hearsay? Is there something about the, um, uh, the a hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And the test used to be, well, is this particular kind of out-of-court statement something that we can uh, you know, rely upon because there, there seems to be some indicia of um, truth about it. And that was what for many years allowed 
state governments like the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to proceed, as you said, by when they get to that point in the case where they have to prove the element that those rocks were in fact a controlled substance, all they had to do was slide that piece of paper um, uh, into evidence as opposed to produce a chemist to come in and say, I subjected these rocks to um, a certain kind of analysis and here is my expert opinion that they do in fact uh, contain the presence of something it's illegal for a, a person to possess. So Melendez Diaz was uh, convicted in state court uh, for these drug crimes. Uh, he appealed at, state, at his state court trial. He said, hey, wait a minute, that piece of paper that you just slid before the, the jury, that's not okay. I need to see the analyst here. I need to be able to question this person. The trial judge said, no, under Ohio v. Roberts and the controlling Massachusetts case law, you don't have that right. Mr. Melendez-Diaz appealed that within the Massachusetts court system. The appellate court said, you don't have that right. He appealed to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. They declined to uh, even hear the case. And at that point in 2007, he uh, filed a petition with the United States Supreme Court asking that the court use its discretion to review uh, whether or not his right to confront uh, the chemist in his case had been denied and whether that, um, if so, warranted uh, the reversal of his conviction and him being awarded a new trial. Right. And, um, and so he, so they, so then the Supreme court took on the case and it was, was it, um, was it November of 2008? When, when did they, uh, arguments were in 2009, correct? Uh, the arguments were in November of 2008. Okay. He had uh, uh, petitioned uh, the year before. Um, Massachusetts was, uh, who gets represented in these cases by the Office of the Attorney General at the time was Martha Coakley. Yep. Um, they, I, I think, initially took the idea that they weren't even going to have to file a brief in the, to oppose the petition. But then the Supreme Court said, no, you actually need to um, oppose this. We're, we're seriously considering granting this petition, which they do about two to three percent of the time. So this is really a long shot. So the attorney general's office opposed the petition. And then much, I think, to everybody's surprise, the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're going to hear this case. Right. So during the summer of 2008, the parties um, submitted their their briefs. And then uh, the clip that you played at the beginning was from oral argument that took place on November 10th of 2008. Yeah. And we will get to more of that oral argument in a minute. But um, first, I want to just give a little, Luke had mentioned Martha Coakley, and I want to, she's a big part of the Massachusetts Drug Lab scandal. Uh, for anyone who's watched the documentary on Netflix, they'll know uh, some of the stuff that that Martha had done. I'll just give a brief rundown of her background. Uh, she gradu graduated cum laude with a BA uh, from Williams College in 75 and a JD from Boston University School of Law in 1979. And then in the summer of 78, while a law student, Coakley clerked for the law firm of Donovan, O'Connor, and Adams of Massachusetts. And then after graduating from law school, Coakley began work as an associate at the law firm of Parker 
uh, Coulter, Daly, and White, and later practiced at Goodwin Proctor. Uh, both of those were in Boston. And then after she left private practice, she joined the DA's office in 1986 as an assistant district attorney in Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, that district attorney's office. And then a year later, she was invited by the U.S. Justice Department to join the Boston Organized Crime Strike Force as a special attorney. And Coakley returned to the DA's office in 89 and was appointed to the Chief of Child Abuse Protection uh, two years later. And then in 97, Coakley resigned her position in order to campaign for district attorney in Middlesex County. Uh, and and she won that. She she became the district attorney in Middlesex County. And then in May of 2004, Coakley was adamantly opposed to the establishment of an innocence commission in Massachusetts. Now, Luke, you had sent me that. Do you have any background as to, you know, why she? I have some quotes here from her, but do you have any background into into what the thought process may have been there? Why she was so adamantly opposed to establishing an innocence commission in Massachusetts? Well, uh, it, this said uh, periodically within uh, the, the justice system, there are um, instances where wrongful convictions come to light where there are gross miscarriages of justice and, and people get outraged and there's uh, movements to um, essentially right wrongs. And the, the justice system is really, really invested in finality. They like the idea um, to process the volume of cases that they have, that when somebody's convicted, uh, that's the end of the story. They really don't have the capacity with the volume of business that uh, the government brings to the, the, the courthouse door of, of new arrests to be relitigating old cases. So from an institutional perspective, I guess it was not unusual at the time that uh, uh, the, all, the attorney, all, all the district attorneys uh, were opposed to the idea that um, an innocence commission would be instituted and um, really probe whether or not um, people had gotten fair trials or were in fact uh, innocent. So that I think is really the backstory that uh, led her to take that uh, public position opposing that. Yeah, and at that time, there was not a law, specific law in Massachusetts that allowed somebody who had been wrongfully convicted and, uh, and could uh, establish uh, innocence uh, after assuming that they even got freed to then seek specific civil remedies uh, for that. I think people assume that if you're wrongfully incarcerated, that once it's known, they open the cell doors and you walk out and are handed a check. It's not that way. Uh, uh, there are people still in prison uh, who have uh, DNA tests that exonerate them, uh, who have uh, uh, key witnesses uh, in their conviction who have recanted, who have other people maybe held somewhere else who have actually uh, uh, confessed to that very crime. Uh, and it, you have to fight it, it tooth and nail in almost every jurisdiction uh, to get uh, uh, A, a hearing, B, a, 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 an acquittal if that's appropriate, uh, and see any type of compensation for the life that was basically taken from you. Right. Um, and I, so I think when I hear that, that she was opposed to some uh, you know, uh, work in that area to advance, I think, human rights, basic human rights is a, is a little eyebrow raising. But, um, but anyway, we'll, we'll go forward and yeah. see 
uh, uh, why that is. Luke, could you comment on, uh, she was at the time of Melendez Diaz, a, uh, the attorney general of Massachusetts. In 2006. In 2006. Well, but in the, in the oral argument, 2008. Yep. Uh, and she's arguing uh, in front of the Supreme Court. And to a layperson, that sounds right. She's the attorney general. She's arguing. That seems like uh, no, nothing to see here. But can you comment on whether that in and of itself is actually a, an interesting fact? Uh, and, and what, if anything, could be made of that fact? Uh, it, it is. It is in the sense that um, the Supreme Court hears very few cases on a, an annual basis. And it has uh, come to pass, and by 2008 it had come to pass, that the people who practice before the Supreme Court are a pretty kind of elite club of lawyers. Uh, the, the person you heard at the beginning there uh, who, uh, of the first clip, Jeff Fisher, is somebody who runs a Supreme Court clinic at Stanford Law School, and he routinely appears at the Supreme Court to argue uh, cases. And so what happens is, is when people get their petitions granted, it is customary to turn to one of these kind of elite litigators, whether you're the state or whether you're a, a private party, and to have them present uh, the case. When a state's involved, it will often be the case that instead of doing that, the, the, the choice that they make is they will turn to um, somebody within their appellate unit who's kind of their, their top gun uh, who will uh, show up in court. But when you think about what the job of an attorney general is, this is a really kind of an administrator position. It's an elected position. It's a, it's a, it's a job that doesn't have the, um, a person who is a lawyer uh, appearing in court uh, frequently who's um, litigating cases personally. So for um, Martha Coakley to have made this choice to personally show up and argue this case um, was, was something of a head-scratcher. And uh, it was reported that she spent uh, what time she could uh, that fall in preparation for it with Alan Dershowitz, uh, among others, uh, really trying to learn the ins and outs of what oral argument before the United States Supreme Court looks like. But she had never been there before. And uh, I think by all accounts, she had some pretty rough sledding when uh, the questions started coming from uh, what turned out to be a pretty hot bench. Right. right. And, and so, so we, we, could you could talk, you talk a, little a little bit about um, the confrontation, confrontation clause and why they may have taken, taken this case, case up, up uh, with specific, specifically uh, Anton Scalia, Scalia and his, his association with uh, the confrontation, confrontation clause? clause? Sure. So um, for a lot of listeners, uh, the name Antonin Scalia is, uh, you almost feel like you should give a trigger warning uh, because this is somebody who spent his career on the Supreme Court really, really um, <laughs> uh, using the incredible power he had to, and I'm just going to tick off a few of the sort of uh, things that he, he did. He, he mocked efforts to achieve racial equality. He uh, favored the rich over the poor. He was virulently anti-abortion. He uh, was a huge Second Amendment guy. He cast doubt on climate change. He defended the use of torture. He was uh, incredibly homophobic. And he went out of his way to um, justify the execution of uh, pretty much every condemned person who uh, came before the court. 
uh, including juveniles and people with very limited mental uh, faculties. So, um, so he was a flame in the world, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You hear his name and, and you think, oh, okay, this 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 is a person who is is practically incapable of um, doing anything that would be of any value to uh, a criminal defendant. But as it turns out, when it came to the confrontation clause, Antonin Scalia was a a real champion of that basic right to that a criminal defendants have to confront their accusers. And it was something that by 2008, he had already established uh, through a number of cases, including Crawford v. Washington, that really uh, overruled the Roberts, Ohio case that I mentioned earlier. And so his, um, I think that Melendez-Diaz was really right up his alley as a case that, um, was one for uh, for him to expand this right that um, he had a, a real investment in in seeing uh, treated the way that he would have thought that the founding fathers had intended. And I could get into his sort of originalist philosophy behind that, but that's who Antonin Scalia is, and that's why he has sort of this weird role in a, in a case for um, criminal defendants when you associate him with kind of all the bad stuff he did while on the bench. Right. It's, it's one of those, it, there just seems to be a number of like never ending ironies that are involved in the Massachusetts drug lab scandal. And this is definitely one of them that, uh, what happened afterwards was, you know, uh, in a lot of ways kind of done with some passion by one of the most conservative justices to ever sit on the bench. It was, it's, it's very strange. And that it would, that Martha Coakley in Massachusetts were the ones uh, so vehemently trying to stop chemists from going in to testify, I think is also another one of those kind of ironies. Right. And, and just to turn back to um, Martha Coakley, two th- late 2008, we haven't really, we, we've mentioned politics in that she was elected um, to uh, various positions uh, up, up to the where she was at, as attorney general, uh, what was uh, Luke going on in 2008 in terms of politics? Uh, and we have the benefit of hindsight. We know uh, that uh, Martha Coakley ran to, for two more um, uh, uh, offices uh, and actually lost uh, both times. But what was going on politically that might make this case um, appeal to her more than your run-of-the-mill case? So we were in kind of a weird place uh, in, uh, in Massachusetts at the time, because in the spring of 2008, uh, Ted Kennedy uh, announced that he had a, been diagnosed with a, a terminal brain cancer. He um, had been the representative in uh, the Senate, or a rep, one of the two representatives in the Senate for Massachusetts, dating back to 1962. So this is 46 years he had been he had held this seat, and once he announced that he had this diagnosis that uh, gave him a prognosis of um, a life expectancy uh, that could be measured in months, uh, he was he had just been elected and reelected in two thousand and six, so his term wasn't going to be up until two thousand and twelve so this was a, a weird time where uh, it seemed very. It seemed like we were headed towards a special election when when he passed, and people who would potentially be running for his seat were in this weird bind of not wanting to be out there campaigning to uh, for a seat uh, 
for somebody who wasn't dead and who wielded this godlike power uh, given his seniority. So uh, Martha Coakley later came to light was kind of conducting these polls about whether or not she would be a, a viable candidate for his seat. And some uh, people uh, in politics in Massachusetts saw her decision to argue this at the Supreme Court as a way to kind of have her name in the news and burnish her resume in the context of this uh, special election that ended up happening in 2009 after uh, Ted Kennedy passed away. And, and that, that's the special election where she did run uh, for uh, Ted Kennedy's seat uh, and uh, lost, uh, it turns out, to somebody that I can't say I had heard of as of uh, November 2008, and that was um, Scott Brown. Right. So and I his think, old truck. Yeah, and so that's a, a, I think at that time, if you looked at the landscape, it was you maybe and nobody else. And so maybe... Uh, that was uh, what what was uh, on her mind, and this is in this also to that point would be free adver- free advertising, free publicity, and also you know running on what she was running yeah. on was keeping our streets safe, going to the Supreme Court and arguing in front of the Supreme Court to make sure drug dealers didn't get out of jail, et cetera. Right. So let's go to the Supreme Court case and let's start talking about. Um, the arguments about so the first clip that we're going to play is Justice Kennedy asking about, and that is clip two. Justice Kennedy asking about drug certs and um, kind of the scientific exercise that provide insulation to deception on drug certs. Can you hear that, Luke? Well, in, in your answer, you, uh, you said, well, there'd be this stack of affidavits and that's all the state would have to do. Uh, I, I, I think, Mr. Fisher, that was not quite responsive because the question here is whether or not there is an exception for business records. Nobody's talking about affidavits, witnesses, and so forth. We're talking about business records done in the ordinary court. It's true that it... The, 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 the core principle uh, is whether or not the confrontation is required. But the question is whether or not uh, business records uh, should be treated as something that are not testimony because they're done uh, based on other protocols with other procedures where there's substantial um, insulation, insulation uh, from the facts of the particular case because it's a routine scientific exercise. So, so I, 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 th- I think your answer... I That's would good. agree is responsible. So, um, yeah, so that was, I mean, they're, they're basically saying that those rec- the records submitted that prove a drug is cocaine is, you know, just that. And there's other scientific testing that backs up that result. Well, I, I, I want to just now put on my civil litigator cap. So the difference between criminal and civil is we civil litigators don't even know that there is a confrontation clause because it doesn't apply to us. Uh, and we try cases with stacks of paper all the time. That's what a s- civil lawsuit is. Um, so the concept of a business record is crucial uh, to knowing what a business record is and what it isn't. Uh, I'll tell you what a business record is. A business record would be uh, that you take your car to the to the shop to get the wheels uh, replaced uh, and the, the person says, I, in a business record that was done at the time, 
I tightened all five lug nuts mm-hmm. per my usual protocol. And you drive off and one of the wheels falls off and you get in a terrible crash. You sue the shop. The shop is going to say, you did something to the wheel after you left that caused the wheel to fall off. It's your fault. You'll say, no, you didn't tighten the lug nuts. And all of a sudden, this piece of paper becomes very important because the guy who wrote that didn't know at the time that your wheel was going to fall off. So he had no reason to particularly to lie. And he, as a matter of practice, writes, I tightened all five lug nuts in his little service note. So when Judge Justice Kennedy uh, says that these are ordinary course business records, what he means is this is a piece of paper generated that you do, and we all do it, right? When you sit at your desk and you write an email, that could be a business record. Uh, If you fill out a form, a U-Haul rental receipt, those are business records. Those are things that you have to do to get your work done. You have no particular interest in lying, and we can use those to prove certain points. Um, That is very different than what a drug lab certification is, uh, right, Ryan? A drug lab certification is made in anticipation of litigation is the phrase that the law uses, but that doesn't help anybody. It is done because of the litigation, meaning the law requires that somebody create this record knowing who the defendant is, knowing what the charge is, and knowing what you have to prove in order to, to, to prevail on that charge. It's the exact opposite of a business record. Isn't that right? I think uh, you were paying closer attention in law school the day they did business records than I was. That's an excellent explanation. And I think um, that's, that's a critical point that uh, in distinguishing between what was happening at these labs, between what was happening at the hypothetical shop that uh, in the lug nut example. So I think that that is exactly correct. Right. And, and, and I will say that we'll get to uh, Justice Breyer in a second, but I historically look to Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer as sort of weather vanes because uh, there are well-known justices on the right, well-known justices on the left, Sometimes that helps, sometimes that doesn't. This is a case where political uh, alignments actually don't help you understand. But I look to those two, Breyer and Kennedy, as sort of the swing votes. And what's interesting is uh, Justice Kennedy uh, repeatedly, and we'll get to a better example in a second, is trying to spoon feed uh, Martha Coakley a a get-out-of-jail card for how to win this argument, which in hindsight looks... I think unwinnable, but but Kennedy seems troubled uh, by uh, uh, in, in, in imposing the confrontation clause on chemists. Um, let's let's play a, uh, a, a clip number three where Justice Breyer uh, uh, is uh, is f- similarly focused on how do we how do we prevent the confrontation clause from making chemists come into court. Listen, I I, I think you're quite right that that. Uh, Look, I can't find anything in the history that suggests lab reports would be admitted because they'd be considered being prepared for trial. But business records are kept out. So we have here a, a source that's unlikely to be particularly biased, University of Massachusetts labs. And we have the checks of the discipline, the scientific discipline. On the other hand, it's being prepared for this trial. So it seems to me some things go one way, some things go the other way. I don't know exactly what the predominant things are. 
That's why I'd like you to address as much as possible that. And when I look at the definition of business record hearsay exception today, it seems to me a hearsay exception does cover today some of the things under business records that would be prepared particularly for trial. You could have a company that goes and measures lines uh, on the street or tread marks or a variety of things. And I guess they come in under business records exceptions. Do they? I mean, is that right? Right. And um, so I looked up at Luke during that uh, conversation because there's a great line in there about the University of Massachusetts lab, uh, you know, being this impeccable scientific institution and, uh, you know, we'll get into that later, but that is a joke. That is not true. That is not the case. And I think a lot of what happens uh, and what has happened in the drug lab scandal overall is courts take things that are not true and apply a truth to them that does not exist just out of pure ignorance because they, and I don't think it's their fault. They assume that what's happening at the University of Massachusetts and what's happening at these labs is above the board chemistry without motivation, uh, as Martha Coakley later kind of tries to assert. But we know, as we're going to show later, that that is not the case. These are human beings who are being told exactly what is happening in the, the cases that they are um, testing drugs for. Right. And, and earlier we talked about the, the two bedrock principles. You have a presumption of innocence for which the confrontation clause has a particular relevance. And you have this uh, uh, concept that science is, 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 is truth and honesty uh, done in, a, in a, a, a rigid and replicatable way. And it sounds like Justice Breyer was willing to trade one for the other, meaning we, we could bend the rule on confrontation if we thought the witness was a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so for him to invoke UMass, given what we know now, is very interesting. Yeah. But as I said, these were storm clouds. The public did not fully know. I, there were some lab scandals that had happened, and we can get into those shortly. But at this point, the public did not know what was uh, simmering under the surface at the University of Massachusetts lab. Uh, they did not know what was simmering below the surface at the FBI lab. And there, after Martha Coakley argues, there's a, 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 somebody from the U.S. Solicitor General's office, which is uh, even more, in my mind, striking than even uh, Ms. Coakley's re- uh, remarks. But I think you now have two justices who I would look to for trying to find a practical answer, both seeming to try to f- grasping for some argument that, that, that because we're going to believe chemists uh, because they're chemists that we can maybe bend the rules just this once. Yeah. I mean, I think that that word bias is so crucial in this case. And it's, it's something that um, as I know you'll cover uh, in, in graphic detail um, that, that this is a case where, uh, it became very, very clear that uh, chemists at these laboratories uh, had both uh, implicit and explicit bias uh, in favor of law enforcement. Um, I think the implicit ones are, are sometimes the more dangerous ones where you have people who really truly think that they're neutral parties, that they're not cops in lab coats, but by virtue of what they do and who they work for, um, begin to have a a way of seeing things that influences them when they're at the end of the day making judgment calls. So 
Um, this is an important case because, I, as, as Ilya said, I think it begins to kind of strip away uh, some of this uh, veneer of neutrality that um, had been uh, given to the forensic science. And I think in 2020, we're just living in a much different time where, uh, thank God, people are beginning to more and more recognize the role of these implicit bias. It's often a term that gets used in uh, cases involving race, where police officers are making determinations, uh, even unbeknownst to them as to a suspect's uh, behavior. Uh, we have a tragic one coming out of Georgia from just a few days ago where that, that came to light, where I think you can look and, and explore the issues of bias. But this is not something that only happens out in the street. It happens in the lab as well. And so that uh, is very much a, a 2008 comment that Justice Breyer is making about this idea of forensic laboratories not being infected by bias. And, and just to offer a, a, a real-world example, I grew up. Uh, believing that fingerprints were um, uh, uh, unassailable science, that, that no two f- people have uh, the same fingerprint, and your fingerprint, if it's sufficiently uh, complete, uh, can be matched to a scientific degree of certainty to prove that that's your fingerprint. Uh, and in, I, I believe it was 2012 or so, uh, a very interesting study came out where fingerprint analysts were actually mailed uh, uh, fingerprints that they had previously analyzed, where in some cases they know who the suspect is. So mm-hmm. you're told, here's a latent print, and we're trying to match it to uh, uh, Mr. X. And uh, what, But this time they weren't told which was the, 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 the latent and which was the suspect. And they uh, uh, failed at a surprising rate to, ma- to, re- to replicate and duplicate their prior analysis. And it turns out there's further data that says if you tell the analyst what your what result you're trying to get, you get it more often. Uh, and that, that that assumes no racial element, no class element, nothing. Just the knowledge that someone is expecting you to f- help uh, 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 prove this person guilty. We'll get into some emails where I think there are these other issues about race and class mm. uh, in, uh, uh, in later episodes. But I think it's important to understand this is not just a, a concept that, uh, is f- that fancy uh, people use, like bias, implicit bias. This is an actual provable problem in science. And you have Justice Breyer assuming that science doesn't have that. Right. And that's a big problem when you mix science with uh law that like you guys tell me all the time that like anyone who leads with you know well their testing was actually bullshit uh is an automatic get out of get out of here that's a crappy defense we're not going to accept that but that's actually the only legitimate defense and and it's completely ignored for years i know it was brought up several times during these processes where people would try to get training records and they were getting the runaround because there was no actual procedures etc at these labs that they followed and they weren't doing actual science right and the public is sort of misled by watching tv shows like csi where the chemists do their work and they get an answer and 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 they it's never subject to any fudging there's never retests there's no con- hallway conversations. What do we do? This is a serious trafficking case. We really need to nail this person. Yep. They just do their test. They get the result. And as we know, 
sometimes the results are surprising and the person that you spent the whole episode thinking was guilty turns out he's not guilty and he or she walks out the 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 the, the front door of the police station uh that's not how it works right uh that's not how it works these labs are producing uh, favorable results to the government uh, a disproportionate amount of time with no ability for us to see if we could duplicate their efforts right and and the real takeaway for me is if you put yourself in the shoes of a chemist and an ADA is emailing you and telling you that the person whose evidence that you're testing is an incredibly dangerous person who has just taken a shot at a cop, not that I'm saying that we have exact emails that will replicate what I'm the scenario I'm painting here, because we definitely do. But anyways, uh, there's there's you paint a picture that if you come back and your testing is negative and what this dangerous person that the ADA has told you does not possess drugs and that can thereby be let back on the street, what are you supposed to do as a chemist? Like that's a morality call. That is a huge morality weight that is put on chemist shoulders. So I, it's hard for me to, cause I've been at, um, labs that have had, you know, like managers and people tell you, you, this test needs to go through. We need this result. And I've seen this kind of stuff happen in, in the private sector. Right. And it's, it's, it's devastating. It is devastating. But this is what we're talking about here are people's lives and right. their existence. And it's and, equal. And the setup to the next clip. Yeah. So we have Justice Stevens, a, a well known, uh, sort of more on the, on the liberal end of the spectrum. Uh, 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 asking a question which uh, is important here because the the two differing viewpoints are going to fight about the scope of whatever ruling comes out. I think the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and Martha Coakley were hoping that this would be very narrow to drug cases because the reality is the public has been conditioned not to care too much about people accused of drug crimes. But nobody wants to be uh, implicated via a DNA test in a murder or rape. So if you hear DNA or breathalyzer or ballistics test, all of a sudden we all get a little bit more concerned. And Justice Stevens observes that this rule is going to apply to all scientists. So that's clip uh, five. On testimonial. Mr. Fisher, I just want to be about clear about one thing. We're talking about drug cases primarily, but the rule that we're, t- we're fighting about is not limited to drugs. Isn't it? Doesn't it apply to laboratory reports on DNA, blood tests, all sorts of uh, evidence? Isn't that correct? That's right, Justice Stevens. And, and you can look at the Massachusetts uh, own decisions. Uh, the state courts in Massachusetts have already extended their rule in Verde to ballistics tests, for example, uh, which are notoriously unreliable in terms of empirical studies that have been con- uh, that have been conducted about them. And my understanding, I think you're right, that nothing in the Commonwealth's rule distinguishes one kind of forensic report from another. Uh, the United States is offering a slightly different analysis uh, that appears to ask, to some degree, the, the degree of interpretation involved in a given forensic laboratory report. I don't know how you would administer that rule, but I can say that to whatever extent interpretation uh, would be required, uh, this is clearly on the interpretive side of the ledger. And again, if I could point the court to a source for that, the Scientific Evidence Treatise by Gianelli and Winkelried that the both parties cite at section 23.03c yeah, uh, lays right. out you lost me at Winkle yeah. Reed. So one one thing that's being discussed is uh well let me let me start with what's not being discussed. What's what's being discussed is interpretation. 
And I think people can understand that if you're uh, in looking at a screen or a printout that has lots of numbers or squiggly lines, that, that what interpretation means. You're trying to make sense of what these results are. But there's another undiscussed aspect of science, which is the whole process up until you get to that point. It's not true that you're pressing a button and a machine spits out a result. There is important work in calibrating, in controlling, uh, in sometimes limiting what the the analyst knows so that the results can't be uh, uh, prone to bias. Uh, And I think going back to Justice Stevens' question, this applies to everything, let's tick off things that since 2009 or 2008, we now know have problems, even if it's not purely interpretation. Massachusetts had to uh, uh, consider throwing out breathalyzer tests because it turns out that they did not calibrate the machine. So even if the person accurately interprets the result, if you don't calibrate the machine, then uh, somebody who maybe weighs 130 pounds and had one drink uh, an hour before and feels fine to drive is suddenly uh, guilty of an OUI. Um, We know that now hair, uh, the FBI's hair analysis has been criticized. I mentioned fingerprints. Fingerprints have been criticized. The FBI has abandoned this idea that you can, because it's junk science, that you can match a bullet to a, the carton that it was purchased in through metallurgic analysis. Um, uh, uh, we know that DNA has uh, issues. Uh, one lab uh, uh, was found to have, I, I believe the crime lab in Baltimore, was found to have contaminated uh, uh, numerous samples with lab employees' DNA. And you could say, well, what's the harm in that? The harm in that is you may get an unknown DNA, which causes you to focus away from maybe the correct suspect. And now you might be putting an innocent person in prison because you're, you're subjecting them to extra scrutiny. Yep. So this idea that it applies to everything is hugely vital. And Massachusetts is trying to limit this to drugs because they knew, I think this was a, a, a political finger in the air, that the public wants to see people incarcerated for drug crimes doesn't care how you get to that point. Right. Luke, what do you, what do you think Would about you that? Would you agree with that, Luke? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think that um, in Judge, Justice Stevens at this time on confrontation issues really was a swing voter for the court. So where he goes uh, in, in a 5-4 case is often critical. Earlier in that same term, he uh, found that the confrontation clause was not implicated. So if I'm... Jeff Fisher getting this question here, I think as an advocate, uh, my instinct actually would have would have been to want to kind of limit it because I think as one of the things I've always been taught is if you, you want the court to do something, it's, um, it's often easier for the court to do it if they don't think that the ramifications are going to be as big. But I think he understood uh, and was kind of playing off of what you just said, that, that there is this kind of movement afoot where... Um, analysts from these disciplines that had gone unquestioned for decades, more and more were in the kind of public stream. The one that you didn't mention is bite mark analysis. They've gone to jail for a long, long time because some uh, forensic orthodontist came in and said, oh, only one person could have made these bite marks. And what Jeff Fisher, the uh, advocate for Mr. Melendez-Diaz, did there was essentially 
um, lump all the junk sciences together and said, yes, Your Honor, uh, this is going to apply to things beyond um, uh, the forensic drug testing. And I think uh, did what you uh, um, suggested in, in recognizing that there is this kind of stigma about drug users and we've been fighting this war and this is the enemy and, and really broadened it to say, no, this is a problem with science that is widespread and what the rules on this very important issue is going to uh, go across disciplines here and, and hopefully make the justice system more just. Right. Right. Regardless of people's personal habits. Uh, and so let's go to Martha Coakley, because uh, she comes out of the gate with the head of steam talking about the scientific test. So that is clip six. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the drug analysis certificates at issue in this case are not testimonial statements that have been covered by the Confrontation Clause. That is, they're not the statement of a percipient witness who has observed past behavior of a defendant. Indeed, what they are are official records of objective, identified, it's, it's uh, in, independently verifiable facts that, are, that were admissible at common law. What was your answer to Mr. Fisher's argument that if that proposition of yours is, is, uh, is in fact sound in response to this case, the state can put in uh, its entire case by, uh, in a circumstantial evidence case by way of affidavit uh, and in effect satisfy the confrontation clause by saying, well, you can call the witnesses part of the defense case and cross-examine there. Because clearly the kinds of um, affidavits that are the subject of confrontation clause analysis could not be submitted by that. I think this is an exception to that. Um, well, and so, then, then that's what you've got to explain to me. Why is it an exception? Because they, first of all, I would argue that although the court hasn't addressed it so far with Mr. Fisher, these are really not testimonial statements. None of the cases that have dealt with confrontation clause analysis before Ohio, through Ohio, through in fact Giles, deal with the kind of um, statement that we're talking about here. It's really a report of a scientific test. Right. Yeah. Uh, so through a lot of this, Martha sounds like, you know, me giving a presentation in college after I went on a bender the night before and just was like not prepared. It sounds like the justices throughout this uh, cross-exam or whatever you want to call it, the argument section, really kind of lay into her. And I, you just get the feeling, don't you, that she was way in over her head and not prepared for this somehow. Well, well, well you do. And I think there are other uh, clips that will prove that point. But I, I think I want to uh, just jump on one thing that she said, which is both as a technical matter, false, but obviously in hindsight, we know that it was a, a complete misdirection. Her notion that this is simply a report and that the chemist is not a percipient witness is um, very unsettling given what we've, uh, how we're framing the issue. That, that in the case of Mr. Melendez-Diaz, he was arrested in the Kmart parking lot. Nobody knows that it's drugs. So who is the percipient witness who's going to say that's drugs? It's the chemist. Right. And in the case of Mr. Melendez-Diaz, if the drugs are alleged to be cocaine, then Massachusetts law requires a very specific percipient observation under a microscope that it be the correct isomer, because there are different forms of cocaine, not all are illegal. So as you actually have to see something under the microscope, that it makes you a percipient witness. 
And I, I don't think she was thinking about that test and trying to hide it. I, I, she may not have even been aware that that's a requirement. And I think the lab acted as if that wasn't a requirement. So that could be excused as gross negligence lab-wide that goes well beyond Annie Duke and Ms. Frock. And we'll get to that. Yeah, that's but, just gross negligence. That's but, not a gross lie. <laughs> right. She may not have known she was lying. But, but what she, I think, was uh, uh, engaging in some misdirection is that the, 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 the chemist is percipient a percipient witness to the chain of custody is a percipient witness to the tests that were done and ultimately is the only witness who's going to be able to say that that is what it is alleged to be. So I think to try to call this just a simple report as if, uh, you know, it's like some machines spit out a diagnostic report. You just press print and it comes out. That's not at all what's going on here. The human element is huge uh, and I just, I, 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 it's a sort of a marvel to go back and listen to the the way she tried to uh, key her arguments based on things that we now know are just simply incorrect. Yes. Anything to add to what uh, Martha said there, Luke? I, I think just that uh, the the question um, really got at what I think was her proposal for the solution to the problem, which was. Um, well, why don't you just let the defendant call the chemist uh, after the government rests? Then the then the defendant can call the chemist and and do this kind of uh, inquiry as to the reliability of the analysis. And that gets to a real um, uh, another kind of bedrock that we haven't exactly touched on, which is burden of proof. Um, the government in every criminal case bears the burden of proving a defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and they have to prove each element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And so what she was really suggesting was um, burden shifting of taking this essential element of the chemical composition of the unknown substance and and putting it on the defendant to defend against the presumption that it is what the certificate says. And and in every criminal case, as a trial attorney, I... uh, I rely on this idea that a defendant doesn't have to say anything. It's the government that's brought this charge and the judge instructs the jury at the end of every trial and, and says, look, a defendant can sit there and, and not call any witnesses and not testify. They're perfectly within their rights to say to the government, hey, you brought this charge, go ahead and prove it. And what uh, Attorney General Coakley argued at the Supreme Court was really kind of contrary to this fundamental notion of how justice gets administered in our courts. Right. It's, it's guilty till proven innocent. And that's pretty evident. And there's a, a practical issue. Is there not Luke that um, unlike in civil. So, so I have a lower burden of proof as a, uh, a quite often a plaintiff's attorney. Um, I have the burden, but I, it's lower. Uh, but uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's also uh, a rule, I get the benefit of depositions in civil cases, you don't in a criminal case. Uh, there's, a, there's a rule of thumb that you never call a witness or, uh, or ask a, a question of a witness that you don't know the answer to, because that could boomerang uh, in your face. And the idea that you would call a chemist in your case, even assuming that you're allowed to lead the witness, and I'm not sure that you would necessarily be able to, um, but even assuming that you could, you don't know what this person's going to say. Why would you do that? And, and this is getting now into the, into the sort of the practice of law and the ethical considerations of being a good lawyer. 
Uh, and so to shift the burden on the defendant is um, uh, 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 also introducing uh, 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 wrinkles that the system is designed to 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 avoid by requiring the the government to 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 meet its burden of proof. Right. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, in a lot of these people are just they they don't have the money to to hire an effective counsel. The the system the way it's it's going now is completely set up for the um, prosecutors, in my opinion, and and Coakley here is is kind of defending that right, right. And, and going above and beyond to defend every aspect of it. Right. But if, here she gets. Uh, we'll play another clip here where she gets absolutely grilled. Uh, clip seven, four for four. It's not. Well, have we ever had? Have we ever had a a, a kind of lab report, public record kind of case? Uh, in in which the record was prepared uh, expressly for trial. I think that it, if you look at Dutton, for instance, and the uh, concurring opinion by Justice Harlan talking about laboratory reports deemed to be whatever the analysis was, a business record that would have been. Yeah, but uh, Justice Harlan did not take the majority view. I mean, you, you I, I don't know where you, you get authority for the proposition uh, that the public record prepared for the purpose of litigation uh, would have come in uh, under the, in effect, the founding era, uh, uh, or would have been outside the founding era definition uh, of testimonial. Except the public record, for instance, of a coroner's result, not the coroner's verdict that involves Marion-type depositions, but the result of a coroner's verdict that says somebody is dead and this is the cause and manner means of death would have been admissible at the time. Or the indictment, kind of not, 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 as, not as independent evidence in the prosecution. It would form the basis for the indictment, as I understand what the history is. It would not be introduced uh, in, 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 and shown to the jury as, as evidence that, uh, that indeed uh, uh, the cause of death was thus and so. Ouch. Right. And that, that last voice was uh, Justice Scalia. And, uh, and, I, and I'll let Luke uh, uh, respond to this but, uh, uh, in more detail. But Justice Scalia was um, very interested, and maybe some will say too interested, in what the framers may have intended when they wrote certain things into law. And so this last discussion was about has there ever actually been something akin to this? Can we look at uh, uh, examples that prove what the framers may have deemed permissible as a as a work around the confrontation clause? Um, and and I think he took her to, ta- to he took uh, uh, Martha Coakley to task on trying to analogize with the results of a of, a, of an autopsy, uh, right, Luke? Yeah, I mean, Justice Scalia's, um, and I touched on this earlier, his kind of guiding jurisprudence was this notion of originalism, that the Constitution is not a living, breathing document, but it means what the founders meant it to mean uh, when it was, uh, became the Constitution or amendments to the Constitution. So uh, this, uh, if you look at it, and he, he did look at this, uh, what happened um, in uh, the American, during the American Revolution, you had um, uh, colonial judges here in Massachusetts whose salaries were paid not by the colonists, but by the crown. And if you ended up getting hauled into uh, court, as many framers uh, did, 
before these uh, jurists, they received what they perceived to be biased treatment. And so um, this is in the Declaration of Independence that they lay out their, their gripes, this whole issue of who's paying the judge's salary and what does it mean for the judge's decision. So uh, Scalia views the, the right to a jury trial as an antidote to this. And he idealized the jury as the spinal column of our criminal justice system and saw this right of confrontation as giving jurors the tools that they needed to make correct decisions on factual disputes. And he looked to the book of Acts and to how the Romans uh, dealt with, uh, you know, they, 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 it was not in the manner of Romans to deliver any man up to die before the accused has met his accusers face to face. He <laughs> quoted in opinions Richard uh, Shakespeare's uh, uh, saying, the, accused and the, uh, the accuser and the accused freely speak face to face and frowning brow to brow as the idealized way that uh, the truth comes out. So this is what um, Attorney General Coakley was up against when she went to the Supreme Court. These are people who, um, whether you like them or not, spend their, their, their professional lives really obsessing with these kind of arcane notions about um, how, how we figure out what the truth is when you've got opposing um, visions of it. And I think if this is reflective of a moment where I, I don't think she entered into an arena where she was prepared to do battle with uh, the people that became her adversaries. Right. Yeah, and, and one, uh, just to build off that point, Luke, I think that that's an excellent uh, analysis. Uh, the, the criticism of originalism very often is, well, we didn't know in 1785 that abortion would be an issue or something like that, right? Or technology would advance, 3D printing guns, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't have foreseen that. So the constitution doesn't help us. But the, the key issue of drugs, and I'll just broaden it up to contraband of any sort, uh, is not new. And I think there's some recent research in the area that shows that the colonists were, um, let's say, willing to break someone else's rules for their own profit. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell did an excellent piece that, that we teach ourselves the wrong history, that the Tea Party was not throwing tea in the harbor because of tax. It was the, the, the crown had taxed tea, and therefore we were smuggling in tea to undercut it and make a profit. And to undercut us, the crown took away the tax on their approved brand of tea. So what we did was we took the approved brand of tea, which was now cheaper than our smuggled contraband, and we threw that into the harbor, both as a symbolic gesture, but also to actually uh, raise the price of tea to make our smuggling more profitable. So I think that there's, this is not a, a theoretical concern. I think that colonists were very aware that that if you're doing something and no one's really being harmed, right? If I smuggle in tea, it's sort of a victimless crime, right? Um, why is uh, why should I be uh, uh, prosecuted uh, and have to testify against myself, not get to confront my witnesses, not have a trial by jury, uh, just because someone doesn't like where I get my tea? So I think that we fast forward a couple hundred years, and now we're talking about drugs, and we can argue, you know, the merits of the war on drugs. A uh, majority of people in, in this state and in this country don't believe that, for example, marijuana should be criminalized or criminalized to the same extent. 
So there is some arbitrary line drawing. And I, I think if you asked for a show of hands of you know how many people have ever done any illegal drug at any time in their life, you'd see a lot more hands than we uh, in, in this society ex- expect. So, <laughs> so I think that this, this really touches a nerve. Uh, and it's just interesting that it would be this originalism because this is in, in many ways what the United States has been built on. The, the, the engine of commerce has not always liked the commerce that has been uh, uh, creating the wealth. Right. That's a good point. And uh, so getting back to the Supreme Court case, we're going to, um, so it, it, Martha was clearly struggling with the last clip. Uh, and the this is where the Supreme Court kind of, Justice Kennedy throws her a life raft uh, right. to kind of bail her out. And that is number eight. Clip eight. Yes. Still admissible. It, it, it seems to me, and tell me if this is not the way you want to make it. It seems to me to make your case, you have to say, of course, this is hearsay. And the question is whether it's testimonial. Yes, Your Honor. And it's not testimonial because uh, these are laboratory protocols subject to ongoing, objective, repeated standards that's different from testimony that it was a blue car, which is specific to the case. That's the kind of framework of the argument you, you have to make. And you have to say that as a result of that, it is not testimonial because testimonial is a, is a legal term that's subject to interpretation. I, I guess that's the argument you're making and that you have to make. <laughs> Ouch. Again, I mean, that's it, it seems almost condescending. I don't know. I, I don't deal with the Supreme Court testimony too much. Uh, I would rely on you guys to see, is this unusual? Do the justices usually reach out and say, uh, dude, you really need to start talking about this because what you're saying is kind of crap. Do people say that? Yeah, it's fascinating how, how the justices use their questions and, and the uh, advocates' answers to kind of advance their own positions. I mean, you think right. about oral argument as being a, a situation where, and sometimes this does happen, where judges are genuinely on the fence and they want information to try to, or argument to kind of sort out their feelings. But frequently, and particularly at the Supreme Court, the people who take the bench kind of know what their position is. They know who's going to vote against them. And they're kind of aiming for these swing voters who they think potentially could be turned. So a lot of the questions that they ask are geared towards getting answers that will help them later on in chambers when they're kind of fighting about how they're going to vote, make the case that they want to make. And Kennedy is somebody who on confrontation issues was very much willing to kind of let stuff in. And he's wanting her to kind of help him out by, by essentially saying, yes, these analysts are are, are almost robotic. uh, Your honors, they are, they are not, um, exercising any kind of independent judgment. They're just repeatedly performing these tried and true standards. And he thought that if she really knocked that softball out of the park, that would be something that could sway somebody like Justice Stevens. Right. And, 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 what's, and what's particularly, particularly interesting, interesting about, about that, that question, question with uh, Justice, Justice Kennedy, Kennedy essentially, essentially dictating uh, the, uh, talking the talking points, points to Martha, Martha Coakley, Coakley is, is that, that he's now, he's now not, not talking, talking he, was, he wasn't talking, talking about, about the, the bias, bias aspect, aspect, right? He's, he's not, not saying, saying whether, whether you have bad actors or, or, mis- or, mis- or intentional, intentional misconduct. He seemed, he seemed to, be to be relying on the fact, fact that he, he used phrases like, like ongoing, repeated, standard, standard protocols, protocols 
that this is that this is the the, the mere, mere fact, fact that this is science, science objective, objective science, is somehow, somehow separate. And, and I think one, one thing that we learn later is, is regardless, regardless of any and regardless of Sonia Farr. That, that, that those, those premises, premises did not apply, apply to, to the, uh, the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Department of, of Public, Public Health, Health uh, Drug Labs at all. At all. Uh, would you agree with that, that assessment? assessment? Yeah, and I know you, you uh, particularly you, Jamie, are the, the more the experts on the science side, but the scientific working group on the analysis of drugs uh, make these recommendations that are like a floor for what any reputable forensic lab can, they, they must exceed, they cannot fall short of. And right. both laboratories um, were, for reasons I know you'll get into in, in detail, um, they, they were not, uh, it's called swig drug. They were not maintaining anything remotely close to what swig drug requires. Right. Right. And they were asserting under oath that they did, right. and, but that was complete garbage. And neither lab was accredited, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't put all my eggs in the basket of accreditation, but it's something, and neither lab was accredited. Um, and we, we now know that there was minimal supervision, yep. minimal documentation, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of uh, things that didn't have to do with the identity of the particular chemist involved that we will get to. Right. Uh, but very interesting that that's just Justice Kennedy trying to draw a, a path out of the woods for uh, Martha Coakley. Well, and it's also interesting to what Luke was saying, that it, there is an agenda. There's always an agenda, you know, like the chemists have an agenda as we come to find out. But the, even the Supreme Court had an agenda. Even individual members of the Supreme Court have what Luke says is their fetishes, but it's, you know, it's their interpretations of these laws that they have an agenda to get out there and make sure that it is represented the way they want to see it. And what Kennedy was doing there was just basically taking Martha Coakley's hand in a fairly condescending way. Um, and just saying, no, you should be arguing about this. Like you're not, you're not doing it right. Right. And now I think this. Let's uh, clip nine. I think is pretty uh, telling. Uh, there's some interesting statements that Martha Coakley makes here. So let's listen. Why isn't that a suggestion that there is some leeway in subjective interpretation, and you might have different analysts coming out differently? Uh, and so you need to get the fellow there and ask him. Well, how often do you? How often do one of your fellow analysts disagree with your conclusion? Or you, this is subjective. I guess some people are going to read it one way or the other. Which way do you always read it? That kind of well, interesting, Your Honor, that argument wasn't raised in this case below and really hasn't been raised in this case before the court. In fact, this is one of the more straightforward, objective tasks that says you put this material into the machine, and the Solicitor General also deals with this. The 100% accuracy, by and large, from that result says this is cocaine, this is heroin. Well, I didn't, I didn't go back and read the scientific treatise you cite, but you say some interpretation is required. So what type of interpretation? The interpretation is that because the way that the uh, machine works, uh, the chemicals are separated out. And so a chemist who's properly trained can say by the separation of the chemicals, these three or four, or whatever the elements are, equal cocaine. Great line there, properly trained. There was no training at any of the labs that were doing this testing. And 100% accuracy. Well, she's, I, I didn't notice, but she said that these tests are 100% accurate by and large. By and large. Which I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. <laughs> but I think she meant they're 100% accurate. And we now know that, of course, that's, I mean, anytime you see 100%, uh, you know, even Saddam Hussein knew that he had to, when he won an election, it had to be like 92% uh, 
because no one's going to believe 100%. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Uh, I think on the issue of the, the lack of judgment, um, what at the, if, if you took the same sample off of the street, you, and the same analyst ran it through the, the same machine two times in a row, it would produce mass spectra, these squiggly lines on a piece of paper, and they would not be identical. They are not chemical fingerprints in the sense that they are always going to produce the same thing. And an analyst at the end of the day has to say, okay, well, this difference in this peak in this spectra, that's inconsequential. This is still the same substance. And there is no treatise out there. There is no um, James Shellow, the great lawyer uh, uh, and uh, uh, amazing chemist, Wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a book uh, essentially calling this a confidence game that analysts like Sonia Frock and Annie Dukin at the end of the day, um, really it's their judgment that's incredibly critical because there are always going to be these minor differences and it's up to them to decide that matters or that doesn't. And so this notion that it's not a judgment call, this is inherently a judgment-based um, uh, discipline that... Uh, is one of the many reasons why you need these people before a jury in order to assess the, the credibility of their, their claim right. as to the uh, chemical composition of the substance. And, and Luke, your points there were, again, focused on interpretation, which I, I, I think is, is ultimately the most important part of this. But there's a, there's a, before you get to interpretation, there's the, the whole set of steps and so when she said, when Martha Coakley said the machine separates out the chemicals, I would say I think I know what she meant, but that is, from a from a macro uh, standpoint is is not correct. The human being separates out the chemicals. The human being decides which part of the cocaine or which part of the marijuana to sample. And if you've ever reached your hand into a bag of snack mix, and the first thing you grab is always the the thing you don't like. Right? You, what do you do? You put it, get offered to somebody else. You reach back in and you grab a bigger handful, hoping this time you're going to get what you want. So this idea that the machine is separating separating out the chemicals is not true, and we'll we'll cover later on that with marijuana, it's a complete house of cards. Right? Because there's nothing about marijuana that that at the time was letting Massachusetts. Uh, have, uh, tell you uh, what a machine thought it was. It was a hundred percent human element. But we, we'll get to that. And same with prescription drugs as well. They and, were doing the same thing, looking for markings, looking for various things, and not running it through chemical right. analysis, and, and, but pretending they were right. Now, so this begs the question, which is, did Martha Coakley not know what was going on at Hinton and Amherst? Which is a possibility. I think very likely she didn't consider that to be important to know whether the statements she was making are actually true. Uh, and she was busy, uh, as Luke pointed out. So it'd be hard to go to Jamaica Plain and go to Amherst. Um, or did she know that maybe this not true, but she's got to sell it? And you know, I think the, the listeners can be the judge of that. But right. that's, uh, uh, I think we now know in hindsight, based on the Inspector General's report, that this idea that there were standards, that, that two chemists would reach the same result, the OIG found thousands of, of tests that had been repeated right. more than once, and, and very often different results were reached within the lab that the public was never uh, informed about. Right. So let's, um, let's play the one. So, so to the point about uh, this not being, th- that there was no 
subjectivity to it. I think clip 10, the justices were actually on the lookout for that. And in clip 10, we kind of hear what they were saying. How could we administer something like that? His point, I think, is, but look, you can't make any distinction either of something that is evidence was prepared with an eye towards trial or it wasn't. And if it was prepared with an eye towards trial, well, then call the person and have him testify. That's it. And if that encompasses every test under the sun, so be it. Because there's no way to draw a reasonable line. You start talking about reliability and their Micah's briefs is filled with horror stories of how police labs or other labs uh, have really been way off base and moreover really wrong. And, and you say, oh, distinguish between a police lab and University of Massachusetts. Try going down that road of which one's reliable, which one isn't reliable. How do we know? Well, you're on. That's his point. No workable way to do it. It can be horrors on both, uh, in both areas. Uh, and so follow what the history was where there was no history on this uh, being uh, uh, admissible. That's great. Um, that's a great quote because, uh, spoiler alert, none of them were reliable. So uh, even the the labs that Martha, right at this time, what was going on in those labs as she was talking in front of the Supreme Court was completely unreliable. So that's a great call by – who was that? Which Justice, That was Justice Breyer. Yeah, great call by Breyer. Who ultimately ruled in favor of the com- – or uh, voted in favor of the Commonwealth. Crazy. Um, uh, and, and again – I think the you know one thing a judge is doing is trying. No judge wants to be wrong, so you're always trying to you're trying to the, you're looking to the lawyers as 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 a as a resource to help you make sure that not only do you reach the correct result, but you reach it in a way that's defensible. And I think they were uh, not very satisfied with um, the arguments that she was making. Right, and uh, and to that point, clip eleven is her saying. Something interesting. So let's yeah. let's go to that. Honor, I agree the chain of custody is crucial and it relates to the careful procedure that a police officer use, who, by the way, is the confrontation witness that you worry about, because the behavior is the buying, selling, possession of drugs. The element of whether it is cocaine or not really becomes almost secondary to the case. The issue is, was the behavior criminal? So the officer who sees the drugs is available for confrontation. The drug is then clearly marked, so the Commonwealth has to create that chain of custody for the court. And indeed, if the defendant, who is in the best position to think that perhaps this is involving something other than cocaine or heroin, uh, has all the opportunities that he needs to make sure that he gets a fair trial. He says, wow. So there's a lot. A lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack. Um, I guess the first thing is that it doesn't, did, did I hear that correctly? That it doesn't matter if it's cocaine? Is that, oh, I is think it? she said it's secondary. It's secondary, okay. Which I think is 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 an accurate statement uh, 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 of the state of mind of the government that whether it's drugs is secondary. In fact, many samples, uh, right, Luke, are never tested uh, for uh, certainly a long enough period of time that the su- the sus- the the uh, alleged suspect um, uh, may, in fact, take a plea. Because they don't want to sit in in a uh, uh, in a county lockup forever, and they can't afford bail, and they ultimately will take a plea and maybe do time served, and the sample will never get tested. That was especially uh, true uh, back during this time. There was uh, one of their arguments was you you can't 
force analysts to come to the lab because we already have this significant backup, our backlog uh, on samples that are coming in that we need to, to test. And so it wouldn't be frequently be the case that uh, somebody would be held on pretrial detention with a high bail in a drug case and uh, they show up for their pretrial conference. It's been, you know, 30 days or, uh, or two months and the, uh, the analyst hasn't looked at the sample in the case yet. And that defendant has sitting before them a, a plea to time served or they could wait another two months for this analyst to do their work. And in many cases, defendants said, hey, I just want to go home. And, and no analysis was ever done. I think the really interesting thing in here is, and it, it, is that there really is an assumption of the thing that the government has to prove. There's an assumption that it's a drug. And this goes to, what do we even call these labs? We call them drug labs as if that's all they do is um, certify that the, the unknown samples that get brought in are in fact drugs. And so it's a... Um, inherent kind of bias in the sense that we, we all assume, even though in at least 5% of the cases, the, when the analyst who is biased and who is pre kind of programmed to certify that they are what the, the cop who sees it thinks it is, these come back negative. One out of every 20 cases, drug cases, that gets charged ends up with a finding that the thing that they thought was narcotics was not. And, and so to uh, just assume that it's secondary, this is a critical element of the offense and, and, and to, to this whole idea that we can just rely on the, whether the cop is telling the truth uh, who made the seizure is, is highly problematic. Absolutely. And, 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 and Luke, that's, a, uh, I think, a, a, the starting point from a legal analysis is her statement about it being secondary is sort of mind-boggling. But... She uses the word behavior twice. And from right. a sociological standpoint, what she's saying is the criminal behavior is the conduct that Mr. Melendez-Diaz allegedly did in the parking lot. That it's just getting in and out of a car right. is the criminal behavior. That's the crime. That's and true. I think what's very galling to me, regardless of, again, how you feel about the war on drugs, but I went to private school, I went to college, You know, uh, uh, the Commonwealth had a one of its two labs on the campus of University of Massachusetts. If you want to identify criminal behavior, you just have to go to a party. Right. You just have to go to a party. There's going to be marijuana there. There's going to be something else there. Um, and so this idea that we de define criminal behavior as uh, essentially conduct of certain types of people in certain neighborhoods doing certain things that we think is consistent with drugs, we're criminalizing behavior that is not criminal. Right. And I think that, uh, that is, the, that is uh, very alarming to me to hear her twice invoke that it's the behavior that we care about and not the thing itself. Yep. Um, so from here, uh, there's a big kind of elephant in the room that no one was really talking about at the trial, and it's that California was at this time doing exactly what Massachusetts was fighting tooth and nail to prevent and allowing or requiring all of their chemists to testify about their testing. That's clip 12, where the justices bring that puppy up. I, I, do, I do wish you would comment on uh, the argument that the state of California, a huge state with many, many drug prosecutions, seems to get along all right 
under the rule that the petitioner proposes? Uh, they've joined the amicus brief, Your Honor, I believe. And I, so I think it's too early to tell because uh, I certainly from my own experience know that the number of cases that go to trial is not an indication of what the work is that is involved. And I know that in Massachusetts... If, if, it, if, if the state of California and other populous states uh, have for, I take it, some number of years um, been able to function quite effectively under the rule that the petitioner proposes... It seems to me that's something that you have to address. I, and I, I address that, Your Honor, by saying that for Massachusetts, it would be uh, an undue burden with very little benefit to... The Why country. would it be undue for California and not for... Are, 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 are you accepting the fact that in California it's a workable rule and it's caused no problem? I, I, I can't disagree with that, Your Honor. I don't have enough information about the way California works. It doesn't work. I know that is a practical well, it matter. It seems to me it's a very important point. Well, as a practical matter in Massachusetts, it would mean that uh, district court misdemeanor drug prosecutions would essentially grind to a halt and the value to the defendant, and this court has looked at in Anadi and other situations where there does not to be seem to be the real issue involved with I think California did not join the amicus brief. Then I misspoke. Oh. Again, lot to unpack, lot, lot going on. Yeah. Uh, number one is that Martha, asserted that California was on her side and joined her brief, correct? And then they, the judges said, no, that's it. Yeah, she, she thought that maybe California had joined an amicus brief uh, in favor of the Massachusetts position. An amicus brief is, is a brief that an, a, an outside party uh, submits on an important issue um, to help the court. Uh, and Justice Roberts, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, um, corrects her, which I thought was pretty em- embarrassing. <laughs> Um, but uh, there's a practical lawyer point that I uh, that I'll observe, and then I think I'll throw the the the, the another tell uh, that that Martha Coakley uttered. But the as a lawyer, I believe if your position is I can't do something, my client can't do something because it would the world the sky would fall, and you knew that there was somebody else that was one uh, a, a plane ticket away who was able to do it and the sky wasn't falling. I think that, again, this isn't a, uh, uh, this isn't a um, uh, ethical duty. I think this is a, a sort of a, a smart lawyer uh, uh, obligation. A smart lawyer would get on an airplane and go to California and you know, do the, you know, they do the walkthrough with the hard hat and the, and the goggles and see what they're doing. Why are they doing it and the sky is not falling? Instead, right. she's, she doesn't want to talk about California. She just says this would be a burden yeah. on Massachusetts. But Luke, the, the, the key phrase she said is that these district court cases would cause us to grind to a halt. So that I wouldn't have known what that meant until I started working with Jamie and, uh, 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 on these issues. That to me is a very telling remark. Can you explain what she means when she says district court and why this is part of the problem uh, and why the war on drugs is not what people think it actually is? Sure. So um, in, uh, there was a Human Rights Watch did a 196-page report a, a few years ago, which uh, the title was Every 25 Seconds. And it, the title came from the statistical truth that every 25 seconds in America, we arrest somebody for the simple crime of possessing a narcotic. And what that means is you're having a ton of people enter the system for 
whatever that narcotic is, it's simple possession. They're not dealing it. They're simply possessing it. And almost all of those cases in Massachusetts get prosecuted in our district courts. There are about 70 district courts in the Commonwealth. And those are, are courts where the judge, the most they can do is send somebody to prison for two and a half years to a house of correction. They can't send them to 10 years in a state prison. That's the job of a superior court. So what she's basically saying there is, look, we are grabbing a lot of people off the street for just possessing this stuff, not selling it, not intending to sell it, and prosecuting them in these very, very busy places that we have. And if you make us bring the analysts in there, it's going to slow down their work and the, 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 it's going to grind to a halt, was her quote, the ability of us to um, have a give people their right to a speedy trial and, and essentially have a, a workable system. Um, now, just to your other point about California, I think it's a really good one uh, from a strategic standpoint of how you deal with a, a situation where if you want to make a sky's falling argument and it's not falling there, um, it, listeners may not be aware. The, the way it works is there are 50 states that have an obligation to have rules that give um, defendants rights guaranteed by the federal constitution. Those states are free under their own constitution or other laws to give people more rights. So in California, they had a system where they had given people more rights than what the federal constitution at the time required. And so what this case was about was essentially, should we bring the federal constitution up to where California is? And Martha Coakley was saying, no, leave it where it is because Massachusetts likes where it is. We don't want to move up and kind of join the ranks of the Californians of the world. But the, the bigger problem for her in the moment was she forgot that California had done this. She assumed California was down where Massachusetts was. And it was an embarrassing moment, I think, to be corrected in, 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 and, and a critical moment because, as you heard, the, um, uh, Stevens eventually kind of jumps in and says, well, that's an important point that California is doing this and the sky isn't falling. Right. I like it. I like the under the breath mutter. Like I thought I perfected that with my wife when I want a point, but no, <laughs> yeah. Stevens like took it to the next level. But the and 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 we won't have this audio. But uh, after Martha Coakley argues, the Solicitor General's Office of the United States has an argument. Interestingly, they're taking the position, uh, uh, adopting the position of Massachusetts that the Confrontation Clause should not apply. And of course, we know that within about a year or two. Uh, that the wheels start to fall off the wagon on the FBI labs uh, hair analysis, and there are other issues that are probably percolating under the surface. So the United States government seems to also have a vested interest in keeping a lid on this. And and the solicitor, uh, assistant solicitor, was asked the same question: What about California? Can you answer that question? And she said, Yes, I'd be happy to. I'll tell you what we do here in District of Columbia. So instead of answering the question that she said she would answer about the largest state in the country, she chose to answer with the smallest polity, which happens to not be a state, which is the District of Columbia. So I think that this California thing was turned out to be actually very crucial, yep. uh, whether, even though it kind of has no real legal significance, but it has huge practical significance. Right, because I mean, at the end of the day, what this came down to was Massachusetts not competently handling the caseload that it created for itself by its own laws. 
and they had a way of handling it that they liked to use. And that way kind of, I mean, if you look back, it trampled on people's rights and it wasn't the best way. And California had a different way than Massachusetts. Like, yeah, we're not changing. And, and Massachusetts could have and, and probably should have uh, taken a different view towards those district court cases, right, right, Luke? A lot of the people that get sucked into district court cases, the reason that they possess a drug is not because they're trying to be a menace to society, but probably because many of them have addiction issues. And we now know more about that thanks to oxycodone and, and other things that have transpired. Um, but yeah, uh, these are people who are very often addicted and we're sort of criminalizing their uh, addiction and then using the large numbers of them to claim that the system can't afford people basic rights. Right. I mean, there's a real irony as, as again, this is happening on November 10th, 2008, six days before Massachusetts voters voted to decriminalize the possession of one ounce or less of marijuana. And one of the biggest opponents of that ballot initiative was Martha Coakley. She and the district attorneys um, at another, the sky is going to fall if voters decriminalize. Now, it hadn't by that point uh, taken effect, so she could still accurately say, look, our, our district courts are being inundated by these minor possessory offenses, many of them uh, for marijuana, but it really is a, a problem of their own making by this policy of criminalizing a public health crisis. Although it cuts both ways because at that time, what Massachusetts was doing to test marijuana was completely different than the procedures that Martha Coakley described. Uh, and we'll get to that in, in later detail, but that, that's a big problem too. Yeah. Jewel cigarette lobbyist Martha Coakley. <laughs> right. <laughs> she was so against it. It's it's just, again, these never-ending paradoxes that appear in this case that just, it's like, what are people really arguing and what are they arguing? And you're for? referring to the fact that now uh, Martha Coakley is a lobbyist for uh, the e-cigarette manufacturer, Jewel. Correct. Right, which, um, uh, right. So that's uh, uh, an interesting footnote to uh, her career. So um, the... The Supreme Court then, so the majority of justices expressed doubts about the absolute neutrality and reliability of forensic science testing, uh, noting that many forensic laboratories are administered by law enforcement agencies. The majority suggested that forensic analysis, uh, a forensic analyst may sometimes feel pressure to produce results favorable to the prosecution, which actually turned out to be quite true in Massachusetts. The sources... um, of the majority's concern are discussed more fully in the next section. So, however, it is important to note that uh, the majority of justices did not accept the forensic science practice was unquestionably neutral or reliable, but instead suggested that cross-examination would be a way to deter fraudulent and incompetent forensic analysis, which actually also turned out to be false, right? Right. Well, we'll uh, we'll see. Uh, you have two different viewpoints. One says you'll be able to ferret out fraud, right? And the other one says the sky will fall, and we'll see which uh, camp, uh, uh, if not both, uh, turned out to be correct. Right. So, do you guys want? Do you want me to just kind of read the dry, um, what what they what was kind of written about the the final arguments, or you, do you guys want to just go through the final arguments and uh, and you know and discuss them? Well, I, I I would say the all that matters at this point we've we've laid out sort of the different strains. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the ultimately what matters is the decision. Yep. And what 
impact that decision had on the conduct of the two um, uh, labs in question. Right. So the well, we'll go with the who was in the minority first. So the justice who did not agree with the majority. So the majority was the majority decision was that um, that chemical analysis. Uh, or chemists had to testify that it was a violation of the confrontation clause and that chemi- chemists were required to testify after producing those documents. Now, the dissent in Melendez-Diaz predicted, uh, as Martha Coakley did, that the court's decision would result in tremendous costs for the criminal justice system. Uh, the court's rule would add up to a crushing burden that labs already bore, particularly uh, with respect to the numbers of drug cases analyzed in a crime lab. And no one at this point is saying you know what, why are we, why are there so many, you know, that's kind of probably beyond the scope of what they were arguing here, but it's, it's a relevant fact. Why are we doing this? What effect is this having, uh, having all of these cases in court to the point where we can't effectively give people rights because we have so many cases, but no one was saying that that's not either, neither here or there, but it's a good thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. And, And an interesting observation is that the majority Five included. Uh, it was a five-four decision. Majority five included uh, the uh, 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 strident uh, uh, members, conservative members of the court, Scalia and Thomas, yep. and the more uh, strident uh, uh, members of the other end of the spectrum, uh, uh, Stevens and Ginsburg, leaving uh, a, a minority of Alito. Uh, Kennedy, Breyer, and Chief Justice Roberts. Right. So it's an interesting um, decision that can't be squared by sort of the the newspaper analysis that you have liberal members and conservative members. They sort of split, uh, and the ends joined uh, uh, up, leaving the folks more in the middle uh, worried about the sky falling. Right. And another thing they were worried about were like people that had ancillary tasks within the lab would then be called like whoever's, if they have a third party come in to calibrate the equipment, could they be called like all of these kind of things that they were worried about ended up not coming to fruition. Is that correct, Luke? Uh, it, it is. I mean, I think that the the problems that they um, anticipated, or they, they certainly ended up having problems, but they weren't ones that were necessarily on their radar. Um, ironically, they, in the wake of the decision, one of the things they said was that um, this was going to cause uh, the labs to have to hire upwards of 100 new chemists and spend millions of dollars. Um, they, they did the exact opposite. They essentially starved these two laboratories um, and, and told them to, uh, you know, do more with less. Uh, so that uh, knee-jerk, uh, well, uh, this is going to be on you taxpayers. Ultimately, it was on taxpayers, but not through the way that the uh, the, the politicians uh, essentially framed this decision. And I have one question for Luke that um, I don't think we've touched on yet, but but the listener might be thinking about this. And if you watch TV or movies, you assume uh, this to be the case, that the defendant can sometimes bring in his or her own expert. And so if, if you say, and, and, and there was a question uh, there were a couple of references in the in the oral argument to when whether it's drugs is the central issue uh, in the case, and I'm very sensitive to this because my case uh, involved uh, uh, was a case where the central issue was was it cocaine or not, and it, I think someone might say, well, if it's not cocaine, why can't the defendant hire 
an expert to just, you know, somebody from Stanford to come to waltz in and say, I tested it, it's not cocaine. Can you comment on why that doesn't necessarily solve uh, the problems that, that were being dealt with in Melendez-Diaz? It, it's a great question. And here's the, the practical way it works. So most people who are prosecuted um, are indigent. The probation department does a, a financial analysis when people are arraigned on a crime. And most of the time they find that the person cannot afford their own lawyer. So a lawyer needs to be appointed to represent them. Now that defendant has a constitutional right to get as good a representation as if they were able to afford a private attorney. That uh, court-appointed lawyer could go before a judge and say, Your Honor, um, in preparation for this case, um, the defendant uh, has submitted this motion for funds to have the court pay for a, um, or have the, the, the Commonwealth pay for an expert to analyze the alleged narcotics in this case. That decision ends up being one that the judge gets to make. The trial judge or the judge who happens to hear the motion gets to say whether or not um, a uh, defendant who is indigent can have funds to hire an expert, and if so, how much they're willing to um, give and what the rates that they're willing to pay. And as a practical matter, these judges, many of them, act as if they are being asked to fund it out of their own pocket. They, the bean <laughs> counting that happens is one of my perpetual kind of professional ripes. And so if in mass you had a class of indigent defendants going to before judges and saying, judge, could I please have $2,500 so a chemist can go to a lab, look at the testing as it's being done, or look at the finished product to assert uh, there is no way in the world that these judges uh, would would grant these unless defendants were able to make some very specific showing as to why they had a good faith re reason to believe this would be a viable defense. So just having them do quality assurances, that would not have taken place. I, can, uh, I, I feel very confident that the, the courts, which were at that time in the middle of the Great Recession, we're not about to start cutting checks to poor people so that they could hire their own chemists. Right, right? and there's, there's a certain irony to the idea that we could solve the problem by using taxpayer funds to redo the test that if we had used sufficient funds in the first place should have been done more accurately. Yeah, I don't, I don't I, maybe you guys could explain why this is done by the state. Why isn't it an independent lab that's running these tests for these drugs? That's just totally neutral. Is there a good answer for that? Uh, I don't. Well, I don't. I wouldn't know. This would be my speculation that you couldn't afford to have an independent lab uh, do tens of thousands of of uh, 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 drug possession cases. What, Luke? What do you think? No. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean. Anyways, we, we could speculate on that, but we don't have an answer. But, uh, you know, we, we can speculate as to why that, that is taken and, and done by the state for the state. But so as, as we've talked about, uh, as a result of the decision, the dissent predicted guilty defendants will go free on the most technical grounds, adding nothing to the truth-finding process. And to these dire predictions of the decision's potential toll on forensic science practice, the majority countered that the sky will not fall as a consequence because, like we said before, it had not 
already fallen in those jurisdictions that had previously adopted rules like the one it announced in Melendez-Diaz. So the California argument was pretty much everything. It sounds like for the majority, they, uh, they couldn't get beyond that. And so impact. So the impact of this, the immediate impact is what, uh, and I'm, I'm on uh, my slide decks now and we'll share this on YouTube this uh, one of many uh, Annie Dukin emails that we are going to go through, but on the decision came down and uh, the chemists in Massachusetts here uh, were not, let's, let's say they were not in favor of what the majority was saying. Uh, here's an email from Annie Dukin uh, on 6-25-2009, she says, sorry, it's been a very chaotic since the Supreme Court decision today. A lot of us have been receiving subpoenas to court. This is fucking crazy. Anyways, it was a pleasure finally meeting you, etc. So she's talking to one of the ADAs and really, uh, I, I can go into exactly what she says, but she's saying you're this great ADA. You know, it was a pleasure working with you, blah, 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 blah. And the Supreme Court just ruled that it was effing crazy that we have to go testify. And then the response from that ADA was, uh, who worked for Norfolk County, um, and he his name was George Papacristos, and here he responds to Annie's email saying that, no, we have to figure out why the United States Supreme Court wants drug dealers walking free in this country. That was his response to Annie's email. And that kind of, uh, and then, you know, Annie responds and, and, uh, or Papa Christos actually responded to Annie earlier. No, actually, yes, Papa, Papa Christos responded to Annie's earlier email. That was his second email. But his response to her, her first email was to talk about how he wanted to get the name of his supervisor because she did such a great job uh, in his case trying to get someone convicted. So that kind of sets the framework for where we're going to jump off uh, for this podcast. Um, and so let's just go through the conclusions of uh, Melendez-Diaz and where we're kind of going to jump from here to. So Massachusetts AG's office was so, so desperately wanted to keep chemists from testifying about their testing methods that they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to ensure that those testing methods kind of remained intact. That is a good takeaway. We don't know, ex but but I, I don't want to paint that we know exactly why they they fought. There could be a myriad of reasons, but um, at the end of the day, they they were the state that was fighting to keep uh, chemists out of court. And why did they do this if other states allowed their chemists to testify without a problem? And chemists and DAs were pissed about the decision and clearly uh, had close relationships to each other, as shown by those two emails between a chemist and a um, DA. And then Martha Coakley either flat out lied to the Supreme Court about the relationships between the DAs and chemists, or she had no clue how the DAs in their state acted. Now, this is tricky. I don't want to get you guys and put you into an uncomfortable position because we cannot ever determine exactly what Martha was thinking here. Um, do you guys reside more on the island that she just didn't know this stuff was going on behind the scenes? I mean, what, is there anything that would lead you to believe that she may have? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take the first shot at this. I, I would say that from what we now know in hindsight, 
that generally when there's fire, uh, there's smoke and people are aware of the smoke. And it's a very simple conversation to say to somebody uh, such as an attorney general, let's not open Pandora's box on something. You don't need to know why, but let's keep the lid on this problem. And so I would lean, if I had to guess, that Martha Coakley knew that there were issues with the lab, um, but didn't necessarily need to know how specific they were. Uh, And the people telling her things could have themselves been trying to shield her um, uh, 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 from that by simply misdirecting her. So I think that she was either misdirected by the, the people that she was relying on for information, or they had told her it was sort of a don't ask, don't tell uh, relationship. Uh, but I doubt that she toured the facility and noticed that there were uncalibrated scales or that they were repeating tests that they were just failing to disclose, um, uh, or that there was in fact a, 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 a rampant bias in these labs. I think it was more that this is the process, this is the system that she's trying to protect in fact, this is the system that she's trying to use to leap uh, frog to the next level, which would be senator of Massachusetts, uh, which didn't pan out, or governor of Massachusetts, which also didn't pan out. But, and to do that, you really have to be uh, tough on crime. Uh, you can't expose cracks in your system, uh, and you don't want to be the person who sort of let that system uh, uh, get uh, unbalanced. So I think she was fighting to preserve something um, uh, ultimately that would help, uh, the image, uh, issue for the next step. What do you think, Luke? I, I don't think she lied to the Supreme court. I don't think she, I think she had a 30,000 foot view as to how these labs operated. And, um, and, uh, it had been many, many years that since she had personally prosecuted a drug crime, probably before there was any real emailing that went on in, in relationships like this. Uh, could emerge between prosecutors and lab technicians. So um, that's really where I think she got into trouble was not being in a position to really have a, a, a full grasp of how things not only worked in Massachusetts, but across the country in places where they did things differently than Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. A, a narrow scope. And so, um, but we will get into those relationships in the next episode. We're going to dive in. It's going to be Elias and I and potentially someone else, but we are going to be examining uh, Dukin's early days at the lab, her background, and also the background of the Hinton lab itself. So Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you said you're going to come back for another couple episodes uh, when we get into Sonia and some of the OIG stuff. So we will be seeing you then. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good luck, you guys. Thank Thank you so much, Luke. All right. And that is our first show. I want to thank uh, Randall Baruso for being our director and technical whiz. He's amazing. And I want to thank also our guest, Luke Ryan. And um, Elias, anything you want to add? No, I think, uh, uh, you know, this Melendez Diaz is uh, 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 sort of the, the expression, let's start in the middle. Yep. Uh, you know, whatever happens after uh, involves uh, 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 practices that had been pre-existing Melendez Diaz. So Melendez Diaz is an interesting uh, uh, pivot in a story 
that had already been going on for years. Right. And we'll, we will find out exactly what we were talking about that in our next episode. So thanks for joining and we will see you soon. Thank you.